All right, if you guys have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 19. And while you're turning there, I'll explain um, a term that you got to understand jumping into it, and it's tax collector. If you are familiar with the Roman tax collector system, you know people didn't like them very much. And um, the deal with them was is Rome bid it out. The job of being a tax collector was a job that you could bid on and you can go, okay, I will, I want to take that job, but it wasn't a job you got paid salaried or, and Rome didn't say, well, we'll pay you by the hour, this amount. The system was, okay, you're going to get for us this agreed upon amount by this agreed upon time. Don't care how you do it, but you have all of our authority and all of our backing for when you go and do it, as long as we get our money and whatever amount that you can get above and beyond that is yours to keep. And so the job of a tax collector very quickly became one of extortion. You know, if Rome wants $10 from every citizen, well, I'm going to get $50 from every citizen. And very quick, and they have all the authority of the Roman government behind them. You can't even go to anyone. So very quickly, these people were extraordinarily hated individuals. And tonight, our story has... uh, a chief tax collector in it. It's the only time you see that term in all the New Testament is chief tax collector. So you think kind of like a pyramid scheme. Up top, you got Rome, and Rome's going to get their money. And right under them is the chief tax collector. And they're going to keep whatever's outside that they're going to give to Rome. And then under them, he's got all these other tax collectors who are also going to be making money and then giving the money to him, who he's going to take a percentage of and then give it to Rome. And so very quickly, you see that this person, this chief tax collector, is a very wealthy guy. He's got a lot of money. And in Luke, kind of the theme about money that we've seen is the belief that people had was if you have a lot of money, if you have a lot of things, wealth, assets, it's because God was showing his favor on you. And so the Pharisees would feel very good about hoarding money and having nice things and dressing really nice because it was showing God's favor on them. And the poor people, the broken people, those who were disabled or blind, well, it's because they had sinned or their parents had sinned and it's their fault that God's favor is not on them. And what we see jumping into Luke chapter 19, it's immediately following a story of a a blind beggar who's calling out to Jesus. And what we see is indiscriminately, if, if you're broken, if you don't have great health, if you have great health, if you have a lot of money, if you don't have a lot of money, if you're a blind beggar or you're a really awful, you, you are participating in a program that just crushes and robs people, Jesus's grace, his salvation is offered to all. And so today, Luke chapter 19, we jump into Jesus and Zacchaeus. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. This is where you get that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I, ah, some of you know. Yeah. I always think that's so funny. Like you have Thomas, who's one of the disciples, and he's got a moment of weakness. And now forever, for all future believers, he's doubting Thomas. And Zacchaeus, when we see him in heaven, I'll go, oh, you're the short guy. Like, oh, it's just a bummer. (laughs) Uh, Verse four, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Um, 
Have you ever seen a, a very rich, wealthy, powerful man running somewhere and then climbing up a tree? Could you imagine if the New York Times or CNN could get any world leader up in a tree trying to look over people and just how they'd be made fun of? Zacchaeus really wants to see this guy, Jesus. It's not like, uh, oh, there's someone, I wonder what everyone's doing. I got to see what it is. He's very passionate about seeing who this person is. I believe it's because Jesus has got a reputation about him. We can infer from the text that Zacchaeus is not a righteous guy. You can't be privately seeking the Lord. You can't be privately righteous while profiting from a program that robs and crushes people. You can't be quietly in your home, oh God, I love you, and then outside extorting and crushing and robbing your community. So Zacchaeus is not a righteous guy. But Jesus, he's got a reputation about himself. It shows itself in Luke 7, 34. And in Luke 7, 34, Jesus is recounting to the Pharisees, and he says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So here's what's happened. Jesus, over these last three years, has been going around teaching about the kingdom of God. But at the same time, he's got this reputation about him. And Zacchaeus has grown up always hearing that God's going to get you for what you're doing. And there's no way God can love you because of the activities you're participating in. And yet, there's this guy coming to town who everyone's saying all these great things about. But also, he's got this reputation. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Zacchaeus doesn't just want to see Jesus. Oh, who's this guy? It's, he wants to know, see who Jesus is, is literally what it says. I got to see who this guy is, who even though I've been doing this, he's a friend of people like me. And here's what happens. Verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. The way I think about it is like, Zacchaeus knows this guy's coming, and so he climbs in the trees, and I got to see who this guy is. And this person that he's looking for, who knows there's something special about him, looks up, makes eye contact with him, and goes, Zacchaeus. Can you imagine in just that split second? You ever have just a, your gut drop? You know what I mean? It reminds me of like the prodigal son where you have this kid who went off and lived a life that's completely unrighteous, completely opposite of anything that his father would have wanted for him. And eventually he goes, man, I got to go home. But I know I'll, I won't be accepted as an equal like I used to be, but maybe he'll let me be a servant. Maybe he'll let me serve him and I'll be able to eat the scraps from his table. And so he heads home and he sees his father. And for a second, they lock eyes and his father's running towards him. And I'm sure there was that gut drop feeling, you know, and he falls on his knees and he's, he's rehearsing like, okay, what am I going to say? And he goes, father, I'm so sorry. Will you please accept me back into your house? I'll do whatever. And his dad picks him up and goes, my son who was lost is now found, who's dead is, was now alive. You're back. Oh my goodness. We got to throw a party. I get that same feeling here. It's a very strong prodigal son feeling right here where it's a, a man, I got to see who this guy is. And Zacchaeus is like, I've been looking for you all along. I've been waiting to see you. I've been waiting for you to come to me. And then verse six. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood 
and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke's gospel of grace, from beginning to here, is joined to repentance. His grace is always joined to repentance. You have John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. He's calling, repent, the kingdom of heaven is coming. It's near. And you have the crowds who come to him and they, they go, and now what shall we do? And then you have all of the sinners come forward and they go, the soldiers come forward and go, and now what shall we do? And you have the tax collectors come forward. And now what shall we do? It, repentance, it should bear fruit. In all of the, in, in Luke's gospel, it shows our repentance, it can't be just this private conversion, which I think a lot of us in America, we've grown to believe. I don't know about you, but I would, went to churches all my life growing up where at the very end of every message, it was, okay, now everyone bow your head and close your eyes and fold your hands. And if you want to accept Jesus in your life, you can just shyly poke your hand up and, and then and you can put it down real quick and your wife won't even see because you can live the same life, but Jesus will come be in your heart. You get the fire insurance, Jesus, Right? You know, where he's in your life, but you don't have to actually change your life. And I, <laughs> I think Luke got, Luke's gospel shows us that's just, that doesn't work. So Zacchaeus, yeah, he does accept Jesus into his home. His, he repents. His soul is saved for heaven. He does have a private conversion, but it explodes into every aspect of his life. He his, the, the poor, the broken in his community are going to directly benefit due to him meeting Jesus. So yeah, okay. I think on one aspect, there's a personal side of it where your soul is set aside for heaven. There's a personal conversion, but I think that's only 25% of what we see here. I think also it's domestic. So it's personal, but it's domestic. His entire house is going to change. It can't operate the same anymore. He gives away half of everything that he owns. Imagine you gave away half of everything that you owned, and then for Zacchaeus, anyone he defrauded, he, gave, he gives back four times whatever he took from him. Can his house ever operate the same? No way. Everything is drastically different. Everything in his house has changed. When you meet Jesus, your house should change. You, you, you do stuff differently. You interact differently as a family unit. You don't watch some of the same stuff. You don't listen to some of the same stuff. Your house, it changes so it's, it's personal, it's domestic, but for Zacchaeus, it's also social. Before, he would go every day looking at the people in his community, trying to see, okay, what do they got? What can I get from them? It's always this practice of extorting and robbing and crushing his community. And now he wants to give away half of all he has to the poor and, and restore to people all that he's stolen. The way that he sees people, the way that he interacts in his community has drastically changed. He, he, he's going to look at people and talk to people. He's going to meet with people and go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for the way I treated you, for the things I've done. It's drastically changed how he interacts in his community. And so it's personal, domestic, social, and it's economic. All the poor in his community, all those in his community, they're, they're going to be changed because he's met Jesus. And for Zacchaeus, the greatest treasure in life is not getting wealth or accumulating wealth. It's people. So I think for us, repentance can't just be this personal, private conversion that all throughout the Bible you see that repentance bears fruit. You can see evidence of it everywhere in your life. And Jesus further explains this in the following parable. Verse 11. 
As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. He tells it for two reasons, this parable. Because, reason one, he was near to Jerusalem. And because, reason two, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So all these disciples, they're following Jesus and they're thinking, this is it. We're heading to Jerusalem. This is the God King that we've been told about. This, this Prince of Peace, this everlasting Father, King of Kings, his reign will never end. Here we go. Even though in verse 8, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 18, verse 31, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going to Jerusalem. Here we go. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Even though Jesus, over and over again, we're going to Jerusalem, but it's not what you think. They're still like, okay, yeah, this is the time. Here it comes. Jesus is saying, don't be so worried about when. A lot of people can get really caught up in when Jesus is going to return. But instead, Jesus is saying, in this intermediate time, intern time, there's a faithful way that you're supposed to live your life in anticipation. And so verse 12, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So this is super common. Like they would have had seen this all the time that a man who was going to gain authority over an area, over a town, or he was going to get authority. He would leave that town, go to the highest official that he needed to, whether it be Caesar or another governor or official, and he would be bestowed upon him all the authority that he needed to complete his job, to rule and reign effectively, to, to govern. And then he would come back. And when you come back, he'd come back with all power. So Jesus is saying in the story, there's a nobleman, I'm leaving. I'm going to be gone for a little bit. We're going to Jerusalem, but I'm not going to take the throne yet. I'm going to meet and I'm going to defeat death. And then I'm going to be gone for a little bit where I'm going to be receiving my coronation as king. And when I come back, I'll be coming back with all kingly power. In verse 13, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas. So uh, a mina is like a it's three to four months wage for a general laborer, for a farmhand, for a worker. It's, it's not an inconsequential amount of money, but that's what that term means, minna. He gave them 10 minutes and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minna has made 10 minutes more. And he said to them, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. This story reminds me a lot of Luke chapter 12, where you have Jesus saying, I'm leaving and I want you to live in anticipation of it. You're going to keep your lights on and you're going to be on watch. You're going to be waiting for me to come back. And this one servant, he's super faithful. He's, he's taken the one that Jesus got him, given him, and he's made it 10 more. Super good increase. And there seems to be a correlation that we see here that the way that you live your life is directly reflected in how you experience eternity with the king. That 
he lived his life in such a faithful way, God goes, oh my gosh, I can entrust all of this to you. Come on, let's do this together. It's this continued partnership that we experience here. God wants to partner with us, continues for eternity. And then verse 18, and the second came saying, Lord, your minute has made five minutes more. And he said to them, and you are to be over five cities. And then another came saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has 10 minutes. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minutes. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. What I think we see in this parable is that, which is reminiscent of Luke chapter 16, where there's a dishonest manager, God entrusts to each one of us everything that we have. It's not just our assets, it's not just our money, but it's our very lives. All life comes from God. It's our talents, it's our gifts, it's our abilities, it's our ethic, it's our character. And when, we're, when we do this kind of personal conversion thing where we go, okay, my soul is saved, but it doesn't flow everywhere in my life. My family members might not even know if I'm saved. My coworkers don't know if I'm saved. The way I do business is just like how anyone else would do business. That that kind of silence and inactivity in your walk as a follower, as a disciple of Jesus, that silence can actually be a sinful way to live life. So note that in this parable, there's no, and that servant was cast into outer darkness. Jesus calls him wicked, but he's not cast out like the servant in chapter 12 is. I think what we see here is the servant's salvation's already been judged on the work, on the body, on the blood of Jesus. He's already been saved. The judgment has already come for his soul, but now it's his walk is being judged. That one day you'll stand before the king and you'll give an account of everything. Of how you've, okay, so now I've, I follow Jesus. Am I living a life that shows that? That shows that I'm, I'm now a part of this new kingdom. It, we're never called to just keep safe what God has entrusted to us. Over and over in the Bible, we're told to multiply go and make disciples. We're supposed to increase. We're supposed to, everywhere we go, the love of Jesus is supposed to permeate throughout our lives. God gives opportunity depending on how faithful we are. It's not just like what I used to teach the high schoolers was, you know, if you're texting someone, you go, hey man, what are we doing today? But you like never talk to this person. They're going to go, I don't know. What are we doing today? But if I text my wife, I go, hey, what are we doing today? Oh, she'll send me a detailed list because it's almost like she's expecting that. It's, do we include God in our life? Like we go, man, God's not really active in my life. Maybe you just haven't been faithful. Maybe you're not walking in a way that God would go, okay, here we go. To the one who has more, more is gonna be given. To the one that isn't faithfully using all that God has entrusted him, well, that opportunity is gonna be given to someone who's gonna 
rocket, like the guy who has 10, who's shown incredible faithfulness. And then just notice real quick in verse 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow, question mark. I think the way that we think about God is the way that we get God. The way that we see God is the way that we get God. And that, that shows, that's the part that permeates throughout our life. If you look at God and you think that God is a severe guy who's always down on you, who's always looking for an opportunity to, to take from you, then you're probably not going to be a super generous guy. You're probably not going to be a super kind person because anything you get, you got to hold on to because anything's just going to fall apart at any moment. But if you know that your God is super generous and kind and loving and giving and there for you, well, all of a sudden, man, I can, I can be generous and I can be kind because my God is so generous and kind to me. And so how you see God's how you get God. How do you see God? Well, what is God like? Well, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that we're supposed to look at Jesus and go, okay, what is Jesus like? Well, Jesus comes to really broken people who participate in really bad programs and crush and rob people and looks at them and goes, oh, I got to hang out with you. Our God is incredibly generous. He's incredibly kind. He's incredibly good. And that, for us, should make us incredibly giant, kind and generous followers of him. We can live a life where we are accepted by God, but that life is not approved by God. So you can have a spirituality that's incredibly sedentary while you're still saved. And 2 Timothy 2.15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. You're already accepted. You're accepted because of Jesus. But we need to, as saved people, this letter is written to a church, or sorry, it's written to a saved person, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You got no need to be ashamed. When you stand before the king and he goes, what have you done? You don't go, well, I had I, I, I thought about you and you know, it's, it's, here's, here's what I've done. I've made five, I've made 10. Look at what I've done with my life. That's how we should be with all that God has entrusted to us, with our kids, with our wives, with our business, in every aspect, it should permeate. It's not just a private repentance, not private conversion. And then verse 28, the triumphal entry. You have Jesus who's saying all of this, right? And now he's heading into a place where really bad things is going to happen to him. Verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat yet. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. I, I'm not a horse person. 
I don't own horses, but so maybe there's a different mindset there, but I do have a dog. And I just think if I'm sitting out front on my porch, I'm just enjoying the day and my dog's out in the yard and some people come down, they go, oh, there he is. And they put a leash on my dog and start to walk away with him. And I go, oh, hey, what's going on? And they look at me and they go, oh, the Lord has need of it. Okay. All, all right. That's just what happens here. Okay. <laughs> And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And, he was, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered him, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So this is a different take on Palm Sunday. There's no palms. The normal version that we're used to is all the people are laying palms down and the whole city is kind of in disarray and everyone's going, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Luke's gospel is the only gospel that doesn't outright quote Zechariah 9.9, but it, it, it really highly references it here that the the spot where he goes and there's going to be this king who comes and grabs a donkey. He's going to uh, come. He's going to be humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It references this, but it doesn't outright say it in the text. And it's super subdued. It's way more quiet than the other gospels. And I think the reason that Luke does this is in just a few chapters, Luke is going to, is Jesus is going to stand before Pilate. And all of these things are going to be said about Jesus, about why he needs to be punished, why he needs to be crucified. And I think Jesus, or Luke, is trying to set up a case that everything that Jesus is on trial for is insubstantial. That everything that they're going, this guy needs to die, he's not guilty of any of it. So Luke paints this picture here as way more subdued, way more calm, way more quiet, because he wants us to, as we go through it, go... I don't think it was actually like that. Like Jesus isn't guilty on any of these accounts. And then only Luke's gospel includes verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Some things just got to be said. Some things in your life, you just got to say them. And I love that. Even the stones would cry out because I, I think sometimes we think about creation as, well, it's, it's just us who feel the burden and weight of sin. All creation feels the burden and weight of sin. The Bible tells us that when Adam and Eve sinned, thorn and thistles appeared on the ground. We have them specifically to blame for blackberry bushes. That thorns and thistles appear on the ground because of their sin. We're told that in Isaiah, that one day in the eternal kingdom, that the bear and the cow are going to walk side by side eating grass. We're told in Matthew that there's a special star that appears when Jesus is born. And when he's hung on the cross, that the earth shudders and that rocks break open. And all the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, agree that when Jesus dies, there's a total eclipse of the sun and that the world goes dark for three hours. All of creation feels the weight of the darkness that's on this world due to sin and due to death. But the Bible tells us that in Romans 8, 21... All the universe feels the weight that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
in the final reign of God, it's all going to be set free. There's corruption on this earth. And Jesus showing us here, everything feels it. If my people were quiet, all of creation would exclaim out right now, this king is here who's come to set us free. Jesus comes not on a stallion, but on a donkey. He doesn't come domineering and say, you're going to bend to my will. He comes as a king of peace. In fact, Luke puts king and peace right next to each other. This is a king who brings peace. And now verse 41. So just recap real quick. Zacchaeus, it's not just internal salvation. With the 10 minutes, it's faithful anticipation to the coming king. It's, it's everything in life permeates to that. And then the triumphal entry that we see right here is seven days. This is seven days from the time that Jesus will enter Jerusalem. He's going to be mocked, slandered. He's going to be beaten, brutalized. He's going to be betrayed by, all, by his friends. He's going to be left alone. He's going to be whipped. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be murdered for crimes he did not commit. Seven days, and he's aware of it. We see in chapter 18, he knows exactly what's going to happen. The rejection's not a surprise to him. He's heading to Jerusalem, and my attitude towards Jerusalem would be very different than Jesus's. My attitude would be like the the angry God who's, I reap where I do not sow, that kind of attitude. But it's very interesting how Jesus responds to Jerusalem. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeps. He doesn't weep for himself and what's going to happen to him. He weeps for this city full of people who literally oppose God. They're literally going to fight against God. And so Jesus in the Gospels, we see him in a few different ways. We see him as king and we see him as prophet and we see him as priest, fulfilling all of the roles in the Old Testament where you have an imperfect king, an imperfect priest, an imperfect you see a prophet, you see Jesus fulfill all these roles perfectly. And so this is super reminiscent of all of these priests and prophets who would come before God and go, God, please forgive please forgive your people. You have Moses in Exodus 32. God, please forgive your people. You have Samuel, you have Amos, you have Jeremiah. But in all of those cases, it's God, please forgive your nation, your crew. This isn't really like that. This for me is more like when Abraham stands before the Lord, the Lord's there with Abraham and they're looking over at two cities full of people who actively oppose and hate God. Canaanite cities, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're looking down at them, and God goes, yeah, I'm going to destroy that place. And Abraham goes, well, surely, if even there's 50 righteous people, you wouldn't do that. Okay, for 50, I won't. Okay, what about 45, or 40, or 30, or 20, or or what about just 10? Abraham never mentions Lot. He's got a family member who lives there, but he doesn't bring it up. He's not worried about this place because of his own personal interests. He's worried on account of sinners. And I think what's really interesting is a lot of conversations I have with believers, their attitude towards the world is, oh man, this is just hell in a handbasket. 
Oh, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. And he just, he separates the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff. He throws it all in the furnace and what's pure is left. And man, I'm waiting for that day. I think as believers, the attitude we're supposed to have is, oh God, our city, oh, the brokenness that's here. Lord, how do I, how do I help? How do I get involved? How do I, are, like, are we really burdened for our city? Jesus is going to a place that's going to kill him. Abraham is praying on account of people who, they might hate him. They might know who he is. They might hurt him. Jesus is weeping on account of a city who will hurt him, who will kill him. And here's what Jesus, or yeah, Jesus does. He's burdened for his city and he's super compassionate on the people. And he goes, if only you knew what was going to bring you peace. We're just told that there's a king who brings peace. There's a leader who brings peace. Have you guys ever worked in an environment where you had a really bad manager? There was a period of my life where I worked at one of the Dairy Queens in town and they hired a very bad manager. And I can say that this was a bad manager because she got arrested in the store after they had tracked her stealing for months. And there was, I knew I was going to quit, but I stayed just to see how this was going to play out. Like, (laughs) It was a bad deal. A bad leader can really cause a lot of destruction and a lot of dissension and disunity in a community, in a group, right? And then, but have you ever worked at a place that has a really good leader? One who's really self-sacrificing, who really cares about the people, who's super generous? Way different, right? Jesus is going, if only you had known what makes for peace, If only our community knew what makes for peace, that there's a king who wants to give them peace in the midst of all sorts of suffering and tragedy and hurt. We feel so blessed, and we should be, that we have such a big church, but 2,000 against the population of Grants Pass really isn't all that big. I believe if we were people who were... our our walk with Jesus just permeated through our life and it was shown not only personally, but it was domestic and social and economic. It was just throughout our entirety of life. We could finally convince Matt Heverly of a Saturday night service. (laughs) Because there would be so many people are like, I got to come and see this King, this Jesus who brings peace. And Jesus is burdened because he knows without him, there's destruction. And Jesus talks about the destruction who's going to come. And he knows it's there. And Jesus says, because, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is always honest about sin. You guys see that? He's always honest about people's sin. And I think as Christians, we take normally two responses to sin. And one of them is, man, I can't wait until they get what's coming to them. I can't wait until the sin that they're engaged in just everything gets destroyed right in front of them. And then the other one that we can take is, well, I really don't want to make them feel awkward and I really don't want to hurt their feelings. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to hate the sin, but I'm going to love the sinner. I'm just going to, I'm just going to love on this person and whatever they do, that's all good. I'm just here to love you, man. What Jesus, Jesus is always honest about people's sin, but it's interesting how he does it. Because you remember the woman at the well? So Jesus comes to this woman He's totally marginalized, outcast. Everybody knows she's a sinner. And he goes, hey, go, go get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And you remember how he said, how you see God's how you get God? It was in a Bible study, and we were going through John, and we were reading that. And the, one of the, the guys I was in the service, or in the Bible study with, goes, 
man, the way that I had always read that was Jesus going, yeah, you're right. You, you don't have a husband because you've had five husbands and the guy you're with isn't your husband. Super domineering, super down on her, super, man, I can't believe that you would try to weasel your way out of that. The way I read it was a little bit different only because I teach kids constantly. And the way I see Jesus in the Bible is that kids run to him. Kids run to a certain kind of person and kids stay away from a certain kind of person. If you're the kind of person that comes in, you're like, hey, how's it going? Kids are like, I can get on board with that. You know what I mean? But if you go, if you're the angry, dark, brooding person, not so much. Kids are like, I I think I might stay away from that guy. So when I read it, it was like, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. The person you have is not your husband. You're not married to him and you've had five husbands. That was okay. I see what you did there. It's entirely different. And because Jesus wasn't domineering and down on her and, and oppressive, she stays for the conversation. I, you've probably had a conversation with someone where you get on top of them because of the wrong they're doing in their life and it usually doesn't go very well. They shut down and go, I'm not, I'm not having this conversation. But when you're able to have a conversation with someone as equals, you can really talk about life. Jesus is super opposed to the holier-than-thou Christians over and over and over again throughout Luke. And Jesus is super on the team of people who go, yeah, I'm super broken. The, the person in the street, the person in the mansion, the broken, blind beggar and Zacchaeus, Jesus approaches all of them in the same way. He offers salvation and grace. And I think for us, we have to remember that we used to be residents of the city of destruction. We used to be citizens of that town. And Jesus, by his grace and his goodness, pulled us out. And so our attitude shouldn't be, well, it's because of anything I've done. No, it's because our Jesus is so good and kind and generous. And so as we look at the city, as we look at our neighbors in our community, we really ought to be burdened for them and honest for, man, you need a king. Your life, maybe you don't feel it right now, but there's, you're lacking a peace that you may not even know. And did you know that some people don't even know like, that what they're doing is wrong? That there's a better option? Like we live in just a world where you know, sex is an appetite and you just satisfy it whenever you feel it. Or my, one of my personal favorite stories, I got this crazy, crazy friend who he, I have all the best stories from him. His name is Sean. And I can't wait to tell you more about Sean, but here's one of my favorite stories with Sean is Sean was, lived a hard life. Heroin addict since he was in high school. Um, he moved away from Portland after just com- his whole family blew up. His fault. And he moved up to Portland and was a producer for some big bands, did really well. And um, his best friend commits suicide and things are just going bad for a while, even though everywhere else in life is doing good. And he's just kind of like, you know what? I'm done too. I just think, I just think I'm done. And he decides, you know what? Okay, if there is a God, if there is truth, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and find him. Because if there is a God, maybe he'll respond to me. And if not, then hey, no problem. I gave it my best shot. So he remembers his mom was Catholic. So he goes and grabs a Bible. He's saying he's in the back of one of these really heavy concerts and he's just reading the Bible. And one of the dudes comes by, he's doing the soundboard and he goes, dude, you're reading the Bible? And he's like, yeah, you know, I just want to see what it's all about. You know, no big deal. Well, he's reading the Bible and something in it, the Holy Spirit's just tugging on him. And he, what he said to me, he goes, dude, I was trying to figure out how I was going to repent. In Portland, I was going to try and find a place that had an altar where I could sacrifice for my sins. Portland's weird, but it's not that weird, right? 
Luckily, he didn't come to that. He had a friend who walked with him through the gospel. He took all that he had, put it on his front lawn, and just left. Like people up there he used to be connected with just think that he's gone and died. He moves down to Medford, tries to reconnect with his family. And um, this was like 10 years ago, back when it was illegal. And he buys a farm and starts growing marijuana because he decides, I'm just going to live organically. It's going to be me and the Lord and my pot. And so he's got this farm. And uh, while he's running this and selling drugs, he's uh, going to Applegate. And, <laughs> right? And one day he's in service and he's sitting there and he, he goes, oh, I'm not supposed to be doing this. Just never, it, it never crossed his mind. And he, he goes home and what he said is he burned all of his pot and he sold the land and he moved into an apartment. Like some people just need to be walked with. They don't know that they don't know right from wrong. They're, fr- they're citizens of a different nationality, of a different country. It's like when I go to Kenya and a lot of people in Kenya don't know what ice is. They've never seen ice. You go to explain ice to them, you go, water, when it gets really cold, it becomes a solid. They go, no, no, that doesn't happen. You're like, no, for real. Some people just don't know. And us as citizens, as ambassadors from this other country, this other nation, it's supposed to permeate throughout our entire lives. It's not a private conversion. And then verse 45, and we're at the end of this chapter. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. So the temple forever was the place that God dwelled. It was the place that you would go to meet with God. If you wanted to go and seek the Lord, that was the place that you went. But there's corruption in the temple. And so Jesus has to go in and drive it out. And this is in Luke's gospel. You don't get Jesus with the whips. You just get Jesus has to go into the temple and cleanse it. And this temple was destroyed in 8070. God doesn't meet there anymore. If you want to go meet God, you don't have to go to this place. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.16 that by the Father, because of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, God dwells in us. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you, that we are God's temple? And man, sometimes the way that we live our life, it's a sedentary spirituality. That's corruption. It's sinful. And we need to pray Psalm 139, 23 through 24 daily, which is search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, come and cleanse out the corruption that's in me. Whatever fear is keeping me from living the life that you have for me. We know that fear is the opposite of love because perfect love casts out fear. That when we're afraid of, well, I I can't live that life because I can lose whatever, the profitability of my job. I I can lose my friends. I can lose relationship. But when we're in this constant remembrance that Jesus has set us free, he's paid the ultimate debt. He lost the ultimate relationship. He was severed from the Father. That Jesus has taken on everything from us. It should motivate us to stop living this honestly sinful, silent life and motivated to be burdened for our community, to 
make sure our neighbors and our friends and our family know there's, there's a king who's got peace for you. There's so much more for you in this world than you can ever imagine. And you got to know because destruct, there's, it, the, the, other, the alternative is destruction. You got to know this king who brings peace. You got to know this Jesus, this, this God who is, became man and while he was on earth, wasn't domineering and cross with us, but came so peaceful and so kind and so loving that he got a terrible reputation as being friends of tax collectors and sinners. And man, when we stand before the king, that's the reputation I think we would all want to have. The same one that Jesus had, don't you? Where maybe when you walk into church, people go, oh man, there's Rhonda. Oh my goodness. Rhonda's always got just the worst people over at her house. Praise God, right? That's how we should be. We can't keep living a sedentary conversion lifestyle. It's not just personal. It's domestic. Your whole life should be changed by it. Your house, the way you view and treat people, and the way that you view and treat life, that Jesus has been so good. He set me free. He's redeemed us. So guys, let's pray tonight that we would see that acted out every day. So Jesus, I pray that you would come and cleanse out any corruption that's in us, any sort of fear that keeps us from living the life that you've called us to as disciples of you, as people who can follow you bravely, courageously, knowing that you're good and you're generous. Help us to see you the way that you are, not the way that the enemy can show us where we have a God that's holding out on us. No way. We have a God who's so generous and kind and that we would be reminded whether we're rich, whether we're poor, whether we have things, whether we've lived a great life or whether we've lived a life of extortion and robbing of crushing people, that we're all sinners, that we're all desperately in need of grace. And Jesus, we know from this text where you are, that's where salvation is for those who call you king, call you master, call you Lord, and reorder our lives accordingly. So Jesus, help us to reorder our life. Help our repentance to bear fruit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.